counting all the Thomas children to make sure they're where they need to be. <laughs> That's going to take a while is what I just heard. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Well, to hijack a line from Shakespeare, today we'll be talking about whether to fear or not to fear. That is the question for the follower of Jesus Christ, and Jesus' answer is yes, you should fear, and you should not fear. Let's read about it. I'll encourage you to take out your Bibles and turn to the beginning of Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, verse 1. If you're uh, looking on with our church Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 818, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. This too is God's word to us as people. In the meantime... When so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray as we ask God for his help in understanding and applying his word to our lives. Father, here we are again with our heads and hearts bowed, and we confess our need for you now. Lord, these truths, these eternal truths that we've heard from the mouth of your Son here in Holy Scripture, we, we, we pray, Lord, that we would take heed this morning, that we would prioritize the truth that you give us, that we would learn, Father, to love the things you love and to hate the things you hate. Lord, make us bold in Jesus. Teach us what it means, Lord, to fear you so that we would fear nothing else. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we pick up our journey through the book of Luke's gospel together in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're encountering a massive throng of people. 
In fact, at the beginning of chapter 12 here in Luke's gospel, there are so many people gathered to hear Jesus, so many thousands that they're trampling over one another. So question is, what does Jesus choose to say to the masses in this brimming over crowd? He could have said anything to such a full audience in this moment. What Jesus chooses to do is to warn them. And remember where we've just been. Chapter 12 in Luke's gospel is not disconnected from chapter 11, which we just finished, of course. And Dr. Luke has just finished telling us about an exchange that Jesus had between the Pharisees and the experts of the law over a dinner conversation. More specifically, Jesus had finished pronouncing six successive statements of woe on these religious leaders. And now that he's in front of this mighty throng of people all around him, he proceeds to warn them all. Jesus says, beware. Beware of what? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, for those of us who are a bit unfamiliar with that word, leaven, the most common form of it being yeast, is something that works its way through dough and makes it rise. And this leaven stuff is powerful stuff. Just a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering what this leaven he's talking about is. He tells us plainly, it's hypocrisy. Now, that word hypocrisy is actually a technical term You see, the word hypocrite was a common Greek term in the first century that actually came from the theater of all places. It was used to describe a play actor, someone who would be putting on an act for others. And these actors were known in this day for wearing large masks to depict the character that they were playing in their performance. So a hypocrite then was someone who wore the mask In other words, someone who was pretending to be someone or something that they were not. So let's connect the dots. Jesus says, this hypocrisy is like leaven. Well, what's he mean? I I found a quote helpful from Dale Ralph Davis as I was studying this week. Davis says, the tricky thing about leaven or yeast is that it works slowly and secretly and silently. You may see the final result of its work, but the process is quiet and incremental and not easily detected. It's true. If you've sat in front of a a lump of bread where the yeast is at work, you know something's happening, but you, you can't see it happening in the moment. It's a bit indiscernible. So this powerful and yet dangerously imperceptible force, this hypocrisy, Jesus says, is something that we should be on guard against, and for good reason. This hypocrisy, like leaven, like yeast, spreads rapidly. You you, you may not even know that it's happening inside, and eventually, if you let it, this leaven of hypocrisy will work its way through an entire person, their entire life. Now, Jesus' antidote to hypocrisy is this startling truth in verses 2 and 3. Look with me here. 
He says, everything will eventually be aired out. Everything is going to become known. Jesus says, the mask will one day be ripped off and all will be laid bare. Nothing, verse 2, is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark, listen, whatever you have said in the dark, in the secret place, shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the rooftops, Jesus said. This isn't hard for us to understand, I don't think. There's no ambiguity to Jesus' words here. The truth is that everything is one day going to come out. Every secret sin, every internal thought or deed. Sure, we we may be able to cover it up for a while, but the omniscient eyes of the all-seeing God don't miss a thing. And there will be, one day, there will be a reckoning. Now, this alone should provide ample motivation to squelch all of our hypocrisy, all of our play acting. And yet the sad state of our sinful human condition is that often the fear of man prevails in our heads or in in our hearts over the fear of God. I mean, if some of us are honest, we would admit that we're much more concerned with some of these secret things getting out into the open before our people, our family, our friends, our co-workers. We fear that more than the thought of these same things being known by a holy, righteous, and perfect God. So, what's the solution? Jesus' answer is, the solution is a growing, growing up into a right fear of the Lord. That's precisely what we see next if we keep reading in verses 4 and 5. Jesus continues, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Whoa. (laughs) Talk about a mic drop moment. Let's make sure that we understand that Jesus here in this passage is not talking about mere hypotheticals. This threat of those who kill the body is not some kind of abstract theoretical idea. The danger here is real. Jesus, after all, has already said that the religious leaders were going to kill him. Chapter 9, verse 22, and, and we just finished last week at the end of chapter 11 with the religious leaders starting to hatch their murderous plots against him. That's how the last chapter ended, but he's actually not talking about himself here, is he, in verse 4 and following. Look who he's addressing. Don't miss it. Jesus turns now to address his followers And if you look at his language, he actually calls them friends. It's amazing. And what's he tell his friends, his his followers, his disciples? He tells them, don't fear those who can kill the body. As in, this is a very real possibility. 
It really might come to this, friends, Jesus is saying. Now, in a merely human way of thinking, that's about as bad as it gets, right? I mean, isn't that the ultimate worst-case scenario? We all say, well, it won't kill me after all, right? I mean, what worse can you do than that? You die. That's, that's like top of the worst things hierarchy, right? Well, actually, Jesus doesn't think so. Before we get to his main idea here in verse 5, and I do think verse 5 is the main idea, let's stop for some quick application. Jesus, if we're following his words and thinking about them plainly, does not grant his servants immunity from death. He certainly doesn't guarantee either that it will be a peaceful or a painless death. After all, the kind of death that Jesus is talking about here is a violent, cold-blooded killing, right? Don't fear the people who can kill you. By the way, P.S., they might. Friend, this thing has happened over and over and over throughout the course of redemptive history. We just saw last week in chapter 11, Jesus saying, hey, all my people, all my faithful people from Abel, he was the first to die for righteousness sake. All the way through the old covenant, ending in the death of the prophet Zechariah. All of those people, he, he, he knows and sees each one. This, this has happened over and over again, and friends, it continues to happen to some of God's choice servants. After all, didn't Jesus himself say, a servant is not greater than his master? I mean, that makes sense. The the servant's not greater than the one he or she is serving. He continues, so if they persecuted me, the master, they're going to do the same thing to you. What am I doing here? Is this fear-mongering? Woe is us. I'm trying to scare you into heaven. No. This isn't fear-mongering. This is level-setting. We're just reading Jesus' words here, right? Listen, hard things, terrible things may happen in this life. Don't lose heart. After all, what kind of a weak, sloppy, uninformed army expects no casualties in a war? Well, friends, we're in a war. It's a war that's raging for the souls of men and women made in God's image. Let us then not be so misguided. Let us not be so foolish to think that we're entitled to a life of comfort and ease or that there's something wrong if we're suffering. At least that much is true in Jesus' words. Don't be scared, Jesus said. All they can do is kill you. How in the world can we possibly be expected to live that way? 
I mean, we understand in our minds what Jesus is saying, right? But I mean, does he really expect this from us? Like to not be scared, even though someone's coming for our life? How, how could we ever, here at Friendship Community Church, adopt this kind of otherworldly perspective on life and death? Well, hang on. Jesus is about to give us the key here. In verse 5, Jesus' answer is, you beat fear with fear. You see it? The way that you beat fear is with fear. Verse 4, does not work in isolation. You need verse 5 to make sense of verse 4. So let's work through it again. You need these two together. If you're going to do what Jesus says in verse 4 and not fear those who kill the body, then you have to have what follows intact. Jesus said, I tell you, friends, don't fear those who kill the body and have nothing more they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Lots of fearing happening here. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. Our problems, friends, our problem is not that we need less fear. Our problem is actually that we don't have enough of it. Jesus is saying to those who would follow after him, you got to get your fear straight. We must fear God more than we fear other people. And this, friends, is the very essence. It's the secret of Christian courage. Your fear of God versus your fear of man. They are, in fact, directly proportional to one another. The more you fear God, the less you will fear what they can do to you what they will think of you, what might happen in this life. Sinclair Ferguson, one Bible teacher who's been very helpful to me, puts it this way. The only thing that will deliver us from unhealthy fear is actually healthy fear. It's as if, it, it's as if excuse me, a healthy fear of God swallows up, it engulfs, the unhealthy fears within us. Kind of like I was reading in my devotion this week to the book of Exodus. Kind of like when Moses appears before Pharaoh in Exodus 7. You remember this? And he throws his staff down and God turns it into a serpent. And then, this will blow your mind, the, the servants, the magicians of Pharaoh do the same thing by their dark arts. It's a reminder to us, particularly this time of year, that there is a dark power, and it is real power. But what happens? Well, the snake made by God from Moses' snake does what? It swallows up the other snakes. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't read the Old Testament. It's boring. What? <laughs> you kidding me? Read this stuff. That's how fear works. The fear of the Lord, as it were, swallows up the lesser fears in our life. So, does this mean 
for you and me living in 2023 here in Washington, Pennsylvania, that it's wrong for us to ever fear or feel this emotion that we call fear. I don't think so. We aren't, after all, robots. I think what this means is that when we do feel fear, the faithful response to that fear is to put it under the authority of a greater fear. What's that even look like, Zeb? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible gives plenty of examples. I'll just give you one. This is from Psalm 56, 3 and 4. David is writing this song, and by the way, just for a little context, David is writing this about a time when the Philistines, his enemies, had seized him in Gath. Here's what David writes. When I am afraid, hard stop. What's David feeling? Fear. When I am afraid, what's the solution? I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He repeats it again in verse 11. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see? David's saying in a real life or death situation, when I am afraid, I will not be afraid. You see? So which is it, David? Well, it, it's both. He's feeling the real human emotion of fear. It's just part of life. And yet, he's putting that fear under the authority, under submission to a greater fear, his fear of the Lord. And that fear, friends, swallows up his lesser fear and anxiety. So, how do we become, here at Friendship Community Church, doers of this spiritual truth? Not just people who hear it and nod our heads and say, that's great, and then just go live our own dysfunctional lives, including myself in that. How do we grow up into this truth and become bold in the Lord? Well, it's not, certainly, that we can never be scared. Instead, it's when you get that way, when you feel the sting of fear in your life, this becomes our trigger. This becomes our reminder to pray. It's time to take this situation and bring it to the feet of the Lord. It's time, perhaps, here's another practical thing you can do with it, Time to recite scripture. How about the one we just read a moment ago? The beginning of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's a great one to commit to memory. Especially if we're prone to those anxious thoughts or feelings. The answer, then, to biblical courage, to spiritual Christian bravery is not, Lord, please rid me of my fear, but rather, Lord, give me more fear. 
Give me a higher fear, a better fear. Lord, teach me to fear you in such a way. Teach me to, to trust so much in your sovereign power and your, your kindness and your love and your grace that there's no space left in my feeble heart to fear what's happening around me. This is why we're here, friends, to grow in the fear of the Lord. After all, Scripture tells us this, the fear of God, is the very beginning of wisdom. In fact, we sing about this somewhat often. Some of you may uh, recognize the lyrics to this well-loved hymn. See if you recognize it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What a truth. Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross cleanses us of all our sins, and even a wretch like me can have eternal life before him. You know what the second verse of that song is? Let me share it with you. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. You see it? Trusting in the sovereign king of kings, the most high God over heaven and earth, fearing him rightly. Trusting in Jesus, his son for salvation, taught me to fear rightly. And when I began to fear rightly, all my other fears faded away. Show me the man. Show me the woman. Show me even the child who fears God. And I'll show you a man, a woman, a child courage. And if adopting this otherworldly perspective just seems a little too hard, too tall of an order for you, then take heart because Jesus is about to give us just the thing, just the ticket we need to grow up into this truth even more. Let's keep reading in verses 6 and 7. The answer to a right and holy reverent fear of God is to trust in his sovereignty, even down to the smallest, most minute things in life. To trust that God is in control of it all. Not just the big picture. Not only does God control the course of the king in his hand like a water course, he also... I'll remind you, sovereignly superintends over the sparrows. Yes, even the follicles on your head. Stop it, I know you're picking on me. <laughs> I think it's actually God's grace that he knows the number of hairs on my head because they're constantly diminishing. It's like a never-ending math problem. Jesus says, are not five sparrows, verse 6, sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, 
for you are of more value than many sparrows. See what Jesus is doing? Jesus just told us to fear God, and now in his very next breath, he's telling us not to fear. That is, not to fear that he's out to harm or to destroy you. You see, the fear of God and the fear of man are made of different stuff. The fear of God is not a dread of him, as if he's out to destroy or punish us. No, far from it. You hear Jesus' words here? He just said he's got the power to send you to hell. Right here. But then without clearing his throat, he reminds us that he knows about the sparrows. That he knows your name. He, he knows you better than you know yourself. So well that he's got your hairs numbered. Do you have your hairs numbered? He does. This loving, gracious, heavenly father, this all-powerful God is so intimately involved in your life that he really does see it all. I'm convinced, church, that this truth should leave us utterly speechless. Think about it. The God of cosmic creation who spoke the galaxies into existence is also that big God, the one who stoops down to the finite, most minuscule, seemingly inconsequential things, and he's there too. He's just as involved in the little as he is in the big. He's the God of the macro and the God of the micro. He knows, verse 6, when the sparrows fall. He surveyed your follicles and sees them all. What an incredible statement of value. You, Jesus says, are worth more than many sparrows. We'll resist the urge to get political with this right now, pets' rights and animal stuff. God made us vice regents of his creation to care for it, to tend it wisely, lovingly, justly. We ought not to rule the world with an iron fist, and yet, straight out of Jesus' mouth, Human beings, excuse me, made in the image of God are worth more than many, many sparrows. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? A dime a dozen. Well, if you do the math here, these little birds are actually worth less than that. You can't even get a Tootsie Roll for that today, right? Yet God sees these little creatures. He gives them their food, Matthew chapter 6. And he knows when they fall. Tell me now what he's not in control of. Now, we can go a lot of places as we seek to apply this glorious truth to our lives. But, but I'm just going to zoom out a little bit from Washington, Pennsylvania and consider the bigger picture because it's just in our face. And if I may... I like to apply this biblical truth to the violence, to the war, 
to the societal degeneration, for that matter, that's just swirling, boiling over in our world today, in Israel, all throughout the Middle East. Some of us have a pit in our stomach because we are very concerned about what this means, not just for them, but for us. There are brave men and women in uniform who are overseas now, some daughters and sons, brothers and sisters, loved ones. What if this is coming for us? You thought of that? I'm sure you have. Will this be World War III? What kind of world will be left for my children, my grandchildren? Friends, the same God who is on the throne, who sustained the early church by his love and power and grace through all of its brutal persecutions and trials. This same Jesus who told his disciples, don't fear death. This same Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God who says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth is still on the throne. Still does this truth apply to us in 2023 just as it did to those walking next to Jesus in the flesh. I've shared this quote before, but it gives me great comfort as I'm scrolling through the news, as I feel my own anxiety start to, to heighten. I'm reminded of the words from General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, who was hearing a complaint from one of his captains who didn't want him to ride out in front of his troops in battle. And his response, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. And I do not concern myself about that. But to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Do not fear. Though the earth quake, though the world around us give way, He is God. And He makes no false promises to us about everything working out rosy in our lives. Dare I say, not many of us are getting out of here alive. Don't fear. He knows the hairs on your head, and he holds the keys to death and Hades. He is sovereign over eternal life, and it ends well, friend, for you. If Jesus is your Lord. All right, we got to march on. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus opens up a new scene for us, as it were. He appeals to the heavenly courtroom. 
on that final day of judgment. And what we see here from Jesus' words is that our words here, yes, here, the testimony of our lives here matter then. In fact, Jesus draws a line between what we say about him here and what will be said about us one day in heaven. This is the basic confession of the Christian faith. What is Christianity in a nutshell? Jesus is Lord, period. And we make this confession boldly and unashamedly. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's the way eternal life works. You believe in your heart. But the thing about believing in your heart is, if that belief is real, it just sort of spills out of there, right? Wasn't it Jesus who said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks? So if you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, good luck keeping that in. Jesus said, you are going to profess me. And when you do that, when you profess from your mouth, from a belief in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that, that God raised him from the dead, that's the stuff of salvation. You confess me before men, I confess you before the angels in heaven, Jesus said. I'm pretty pumped because in just a few minutes, we have the opportunity to watch two of our own climb into the waters of baptism and say, Jesus is Lord. To confess publicly that they believe. This is, this is good stuff. What we do here, what we say here matters. But there are some of you who are getting worried. Well, well does that mean that if I ever fail to acknowledge Jesus is Lord? Like, what if I lose nerve in a particular situation? Am I doomed? Thank the Lord that he is kind and gracious. The answer is no, or it doesn't have to be no. And I present to you as evidence, exhibit A, Simon Peter. You remember the one on the night Jesus was betrayed denied him three times? Is Peter in heaven? <laughs> he better be. His name's inscribed on the foundation of the New Jerusalem. It's not that we do this perfectly. By the way, that's not how grace works. That's not how salvation works. We may falter in our imperfect profession that Jesus is Lord, but God gives us the grace. He extends us forgiveness. And if this thing is real, even you of little faith, even me with my fragile faith, 
to confess again from our hearts, from our lips. He's God. This is real, I believe. All right. Verse 10. Ay, ay, ay. This is a big one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's read Jesus' words. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Let me just confess to you now. This is very deep water. And we're not going to swim the whole ocean today, okay? But... Jesus has pointed us to this truth, and, and we would do well to wrestle with it on a high level. Jesus says, it's possible, possible excuse me, to blaspheme me, to blaspheme the Son of God, Jesus in the flesh. After all, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he once was a blasphemer. We just heard about Peter. Is it possible to blaspheme the Son of God and be forgiven? Yes, Jesus says. But there's something different happening here with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There must be something more serious Jesus is talking about with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he says in no uncertain terms, the one who does this, uh-uh, no forgiveness available. It's interesting to me that Dr. Luke, who is usually so detailed, does not give us much more here, not much more detail in the Gospel of Luke, but thankfully, God gave us everything necessary for life and godliness in His Word, and we do see this truth built out, much more color added to it elsewhere in Scripture. After all, if you're working your way through Scripture and you just hit a roadblock, you don't understand something, what's the best way to interpret Scripture? Well, more Scripture. Does Scripture speak anywhere else about this? Thankfully, yes. God in His kindness tells us about this same blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3, and Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12. We're not going to read those passages, but, but you can, if, you're, if you're wrestling through this, you want to dive deeper this week, go ahead. Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 12. Now, in both these other cases, we get more information about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in both these other accounts, Mark 3, Matthew 12, Jesus makes it clear that this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is connected to this account that Benjamin just taught about a few weeks ago. Remember how Jesus was doing this miraculous stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God? People are getting healed. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders step up and they pronounce their conclusion. Well, he's only able to do that miraculous stuff by the power of Beelzebul. What are they doing? They're calling the Holy Spirit at work in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's his spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. An evil spirit. 
despite the fact that the grace and power and goodness of God is abundantly clear in front of them, they persistently look at the Spirit's work through the Son of God and say, that's evil, that's wicked, that's wrong, that's of the devil. I'll just give you one little snippet here. Mark 3, 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, Jesus speaking, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, hallelujah, and whatever blasphemies they utter, utter, excuse me, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have you committed it? <gasps> Jesus says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that they were calling the Holy Spirit's life, uh, work in the life and ministry of Jesus evil. When they saw these miraculous works around him, they persistently dug in their heels and said, no. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That you would see the Holy Spirit's power as he illuminates Jesus the Son and cross your proverbial arms and dig in your heels and say, I don't want it. That's wrong. That's bad. That's insufficient. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony that Jesus is Lord. Everybody will be forgiven, no matter what kind of carnage is in your closet, no matter how, how dark your sins are back there, except the people who fully and finally say at the end of the line, I will not bow. Jesus is not Lord. The work, at him, the work in his life through the power of the Spirit was not enough. It was not good. Jesus says no forgiveness for that one. Verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say for the, huh, for the what? For the who? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Here Jesus is preparing his followers for persecution. There will come a day, Jesus said, when they may drag you before kings and queens, before courts and authorities. What will your confession be? And how will you know what to say? How do you prepare for that moment? Jesus answered, Will the very same Spirit at work in me, the Spirit who opened your eyes to see that I'm Lord, the Spirit that raised me from the dead, that same Spirit will grant you power to be faithful in that moment, to know how to speak. He will grant you, if I can circle back the wagon to verse 5, 
the righteous fear, the holy fear of God to say, I fear Him more than I fear y'all. They give us the testimony to say, Jesus is Lord. And that's where we end today.